Hey guys, how you doing? Good morning. Go ahead and take a seat. Everyone doing all right this morning? Yeah, cool. All right. Um, Will, I am not Gabe. Uh, my name is Ricky. For those of you guys that don't know me, um, I'm also on staff here. Um, and if you've been here with us this summer, you know that we um, just finished a, uh, a series. Uh, we talked about We Are the Church. We went through kind of our mission statement as the branch, um, talked about a little bit about who we are. We broke that up into four different weeks uh, and tried to illustrate who we are as the branch and how we approach things and what we feel the Bible has led us to do, but then also what that means to be a part of the Big C Church, capital letter, the Universal Church. I uh, looked at a quote from a guy named Charles Spurgeon called the church the dearest place on earth and, and what that means and uh, how the church is more of a people than it is a place. Um, and if you've been with us for even longer than that, you know that we have like always been in the book of Luke and always will be in the book of Luke from now and forevermore. Amen. Um, but with it being Labor Day, um, we decided kind of take a breath. Uh, give a little bit more of a break and do one more week of something different before we kind of dive headfirst into that. So you guys cool with that? Um, so we will be looking at scripture and if you guys want to go kind of ahead and bookmark it uh, first, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. Um, but before we get into that, uh, before we, we really get into the scripture, I thought that it would be important uh, to give you guys a little bit of a backstory on me um, and, and my relationship with the church and hopefully the reason for that will become apparent in a little bit but uh, I was a kid who was raised around church at least off and on uh, for most of my life and uh, when I was in the ninth grade that's when I kind of made the decision to accept the call that I felt Christ had on my life and to trust him as my savior so that's kind of the point where I feel I, I really became a Christian was in the ninth grade and from from that point on I kind of dove headfirst into church uh, completely immersed myself into it. I was a church kid through and through. Um, so on Wednesdays with our youth, you know, I was on the, the leadership team or the discipleship team, whatever you want to call it. On, on Sundays, I served in children's ministry. Um, any of you guys remember the show Drake and Josh? Especially college? Okay, saw a hand shoot right up. So uh, I was part of a skit writing team and I wrote Christian parodies to the show Drake and Josh. Uh, with, called Jake and Ross. <laughs> and it was the dumbest thing in the world. Uh, they got into mischief and they learned about Jesus. And it was adorable. Um, but I was part of that every Sunday. Uh, my wife and I, girlfriend at the time, uh, we also served in the nursery. Um, another show on Disney, if you guys remember the show Imagination Movers. Anybody remember that from a kid? They were kind of like the Wiggles. They sang songs. Um, but also on Sundays, I would dress up in a blue jumpsuit. And I would give sermons to kindergartners as a Disney show character. Um, that's just part of what I did. And uh, then college came around, graduated high school, started coming to North Georgia, and I received the talk. Not that talk, don't be weird. Um, but if any of you guys have been in church for any length of time, I am positive, absolutely positive, that some youth pastor somewhere has given you guys the same talk. Parents, you're not excluded. Adults, I'm sure you've given this talk. And that's that college is a scary place for Christians, right? The first day you come into college, it's going to be some big God's not dead moment where some embittered liberal professor is going to make you stand up and renounce your faith publicly to the whole school. All of your other classmates are going to be drinking and partying and cohabitating with the opposite sex. And it's so much so, it's so hard for Christians in college that only 4%, I'm sure you guys have heard that statistic, 4% of Christians actually maintain the faith by the time that they're, they've graduated from college. 
And so I heard that and kind of took it almost as like a personal challenge. Like 4%, no way that's going to be me. As a matter of fact, not only am I not going to get weaker in my faith and not going to renounce my faith, I'm going to get stronger in my faith. I'm going to be more disciple. I'm going to find other believers and I'm going to leave college stronger and as a more efficient disciple and follower of Christ. And so I cranked it up to 11. Got involved even more in our local church. In addition to all the other things that I just said, I started doing food drives. Uh, like day one of college, I, I got involved in a campus ministry and started doing Bible studies with them, started doing leadership with them, going on hiking trips to raise money for missions and things like that. I mean, I, I, I did all that stuff. And I remember, I remember very distinctly, um, I was actually, I was living with Matt, the, the worship leader up here. Uh, I was in a sophomore of college, and I, and I remember having this overwhelming sense of pride in myself. I was proud of myself because I was looking at my schedule, and I realized that every single day of the week, I was doing something in regards to church leadership. I could look at my schedule, and I could say, well, Monday, that's when I meet at our campus ministry, and then Tuesday, that's when I do leadership at our church, and then Wednesday, obviously, all day, that's youth services, and then Thursday, that's when I meet with the, the men's Bible study over here. And then Friday, every single day I was doing something. And I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, like you're doing it, Ricky. Like, this is it. You've arrived. Like, you are finally, this is what discipleship looks like. You are there. This is, this is what the Christian walk has called you to do. And I was, I was proud of myself. And hopefully you guys can kind of get the way I'm talking. I no longer look back at that time with the same amount of pride. I don't think I view those years in the same lens that I do now, and we'll get there. And I'll explain why I feel that and, and the reasons behind that in a little bit. But the reason that I give you guys that information about myself, that little story, is that if you guys were here last week, how many of you guys were here last week? Okay, a lot of you guys. So um, if you were here, you know, we had our like official kickoff service, right? We did our launch, insert church word here. Um, it was the first week back for a lot of college students. And if you guys stayed and you ate the pizza with us and you hung out and listened to like the Q&A session that, uh, that Gabe and I did, um, there was one question that I noticed, and I think we all as a staff kind of noticed, that kept appearing over and over and over again, or at least one type of question. And that question was something like this. It said, how do I get involved in leadership? Um, how do I get involved in what you guys are doing? Are there any um, mission opportunities? Do you guys have any way that I could feed the homeless or that we could work with, with kids in other schools? Or, you know, uh, do you guys have any Bible studies throughout the week? And what I feel that a lot of you guys are asking, those of you guys that asked that question, what I think is actually being asked there uh, is the same thing that I was asking when I was your age. And that's, how do I become a disciple of Christ? And can you help me do that? What does it look like to be a, a real Christian? What does it look like to be a disciple? And, and what do I need to do for that? Can you guys help me get involved and to see what that looks like? Uh, and because it's, the logic that we use for that is, is really easy. It makes sense for the most part. I think that a, a lot of us, I know again, I definitely did when I was in college when, um, and earlier on in my life, is that we look up at church leaders, right? We look at people that are on staff or we look at elders or people that are, are leading things in a church and we think to ourselves, well, they must be disciples, right? If they're a leader in a church, that's how they got there. They must be a disciple. I want to be a disciple and so therefore I must be a church leader, right? If I want to be discipled, I have to enter into these leadership opportunities, and that's what discipleship is. And what I would kind of like to do then is we're going to be looking at, at Matthew chapter 9. I want to read some scripture. 
look at some things that Jesus said and hopefully challenge that notion a little bit in our minds and just compare the two. Uh, and hopefully that will illuminate some things for us and uh, show us how we can move forward and answer some of the questions that some of you guys had in an altogether kind of succinct way. So if you guys will open up your Bibles then, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 9 through 13. If you're looking at headings, if your Bible has a heading, it's called the calling of Matthew, right? So as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. If you're an underliner, underline this part. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, and this is important, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm going to pray really quick and then we'll move in. Dear God, um, thank you for today. Thank you for yourself. Thank you for the amazing things that you have done, God, and that you will do in our life. Thank you for your glory. Uh, thank you that it goes beyond understanding, Father. I pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes and our ears today to accept what you have in this text for us, God. Um, I pray that we would hear you, um, that we would be filled with your spirit and, and proclaim you boldly throughout this week. Um, and that no one would leave here the same as when they came in, God, that we would uh, feel the weight of what you have called us to, Father. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, the first thing that we notice in this, if you look around uh, Matthew 9 and even a little bit before that, you'll see that this is kind of where Jesus is rounding up his team, right? He's finishing up calling all his disciples. At this point, Peter is already on board. He's already been called by Christ. Uh, James and John, the part where he says, cast your nets, I'll make you fishers of men, that part is already passed. And he's kind of finishing up his team with Matthew, who's a tax collector. And uh, some of you guys, if you know a little bit about Israel at this point in time and about kind of how uh, Roman, the Roman rule interacted with Israel, you know that tax collectors were not very popular people, right? They were kind of seen as traitors. Their very career was considered sinful, kind of like tax collectors now, to be honest. Right? They were not super popular people. But Jesus has come to them, uh, has come to Matthew, and he has said, follow me. And I told you guys to underline that because it's a phrase that Jesus uses a lot in this, follow me. And it's actually, it's something that's, it's really common for rabbis at this time period. Jesus at the time was viewed as a rabbi. And if you had finished your, your education at this point, right, you wanted to continue on and wanted to be a rabbi yourself, it was expected that you would go and find one to be a disciple under. And that rabbi would speak with you, would kind of interrogate you, ask you questions, interview you. And if he saw you as being worthy enough, he would say, okay, follow me. And it was expected that you would leave everything. That you are now a disciple of this rabbi. You go where he goes. You do what he, what he does. There's a, a common phrase at this time, uh, kind of like a prayer. And it would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what that meant, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, is that you followed so closely that even the dust from where he walked would settle on you, that it was known just by looking at you, I could tell where you had been, and I could tell where your rabbi had been. And so Jesus is coming to Matthew, and he is saying, follow me. In Matthew alone, just this book, Jesus uses this phrase seven different times. And if you're looking at all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
Jesus uses this phrase, follow me, 23 different times. So it's pretty easy to see, if you're a point person, if you're taking notes, first note would be, we can tell that in order to be a disciple of Christ, one of the most important things, one of the most clear things we have to realize is that we have to follow Christ, right? We have to be willing to go where he went, to do what he does, to be where he is. And I think that, at least on a base level, everyone gets that, right? I don't think that that part right there, if I were to say, okay, amen, let's go, that we could all say that we learned something, right? Because it's even in the vernacular that we use as Christians. Like, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm going to learn how to better follow Jesus. We get that. We know that. The hard part is not so much that we need to follow, but it's the next question we ask, which is, where am I following him to, right? What does that look like? What does that mean? I get it. Okay, I got to follow Christ, but like tomorrow at 1130, what does that look like? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Let's read on. So if you look at this next part, it says, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and he followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So right there we can stop. Jesus has just come to Matthew and has completely just blown down the doors in his life, right? He has said, I am not just a rabbi. I am the good teacher. I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one of God who has come to save his people from their sins. And I, Jesus Christ, am choosing you, Matthew, to be one of my disciples. I am giving you the opportunity to leave everything behind. Completely say goodbye to your life. Change everything. And Matthew says, yes, I will do that, Lord. And he courageously and he faithfully follows Jesus to his own house. I find it interesting that Jesus has come and has asked Matthew to follow him to a place where he already goes. He's leading him into his own house. And what's more, not just into his own house, but to having dinner with other people, having a meal in his house. And one of the questions I want to ask about this as we're reading it, it says that uh, he was having dinner at Matthew's house with many tax collectors and sinners that came and ate with him and his disciples. Is it fair for us to think that Matthew knows these people? Did Jesus bring these people or did Matthew? From reading earlier on, the only thing that we really know about Matthew that it's introduced about him is that he is a tax collector, right? And then it mentions later on and it says that he's eating a meal with Jesus with other tax collectors. These are people that share his occupation, right? So I think that it's fair for us to assume These are Matthew's friends, or at the very least, they're his colleagues, right? And and I don't know for sure, but I think it would be fair for us to assume, too, that these are people that have eaten with him before. That Jesus led Matthew into his own house to do something that he has probably already done before, and maybe even does regularly. At this time, like, having a meal with someone wasn't the way that it was now. You didn't just invite people over to your house to have a meal. That was something very intimate, something very spiritual. And so if these people are here, I think it's fair to assume that they have done this before. And so the question I would ask is, not just does does Matthew know these people, but um, how do you think that this meal differed from other meals that Matthew's had in his house? How do you think that the conversations that these tax collectors had was different than conversations they had had before? You got to think again, these are people that work with Matthew. These are people that know him, that have seen his life, that understand how he feels and understand his views on certain things. Do you think that the atmosphere, do you think that the things that they talked about, the things that they did were the same as they had been before? Or do you think that there was a noticeable difference 
something that obviously is centered around this other dude that's now suddenly sitting at the table. So the first question that I think I would ask you guys is this, is that if we chose to be true followers of Christ, if we decided to be disciples, to go where Christ has called us to go, to do what Christ has called us to do, how would it change the everyday things of our life? How would it change the things that we are already doing every single day? Because I think that, um, that as a church, we've done a really good job, or maybe, maybe a better way of saying this is that we've done a really bad job of glamorizing discipleship, of making it this really big theatrical kind of dramatized thing. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? A lot of times, a lot of the sermons that I've heard, and so I, I would assume a lot of the sermons that you guys have heard from pastors, when we talk about having boldness for Christ, the examples that we use are these amazing larger-than-life stories about people that went to the ends of the earth and gave their lives away to Christ, right? Who went to people that didn't speak English in these remote tribes somewhere in Africa, right? We, we almost idolize these disciples, these, these again, these bigger-than-life kind of characters. We look at people like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, right? Amazing theologian, wrote a ton of books. A uh, guy who was a, a spy for the American government and was eventually martyred for the faith by Nazis. Amazing story. We look at people like Ravi Zacharias, brilliant theologian, brilliant philosopher, who was raised in one of the highest castes of Hindu priests, all right, in India. And when he was 19 or 20, actually attempted to take his own life because he was an atheist and he thought that life had no meaning. But Jesus came, intercepted his life, and he became a Christian, one of the, the best Christian apologists of the time, in my opinion. So we take these people and we talk about faith and when we talk about discipleship, we don't use regular people as an example. We use, you know, murderers and ex-heroin addicts and people who went to the ends of the earth, these, these larger-than-life miraculous things. But nobody talks about following God and what it looks like to follow Christ in your own home. What it looks like when Jesus has come to you and said, follow me, and it leads you to do the things that you are already doing. There's a phrase that I, I really like that I heard, and it said that discipleship with Christ is not so much about doing different things as much as it is about doing the same things differently. I'll say that again just because I think it's important. Discipleship is not so much about doing different things as much as it's about doing the same things differently. And I, I wonder what that would look like. And I think that, that Jesus here even tells us what it would look like. You read on to the next part. It says that when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When we start to do these things, people will notice. They will take action. They will ask questions about it. And they will give you a chance to respond in the same way that Jesus did here. And I, I think that it's beautiful. I think it's really important for us to learn it. Jesus responds and says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. And I'll be honest, reading this phrase and reading this verse, you know, I've heard it before and I've heard sermons on it before. And it was one of those verses that I get it. I think I understand what they're trying to say, what Jesus really means when he says that. But the word choice here has always bothered me. I desire mercy, and not sacrifice. Because when I think about the word mercy, I, I think about someone giving mercy to someone who has done something wrong, right? If you do something wrong against me, well then I give you mercy and I forgive you for that. And so when now Jesus is speaking here, this is God talking and he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's always confused me. 
What has God done that he needs my mercy? Why is it that God desires mercy? And so as I was kind of picking what I wanted to talk about, and I saw this, this verse, um, I thought it was important, but that word kept bothering me. And so I looked it up. And uh, that word, mercy, is a super Hebrew word. Uh, it's the word chesed. Chesed. K-H-E with an accent mark. S-E-D-H. Chesed. All right? Super Jewish word. And that word chesed that uh, we use in this point translates to the word mercy. is actually translated all throughout the Old Testament as the word loving kindness. So maybe that's a better thing for us to put there is the word loving kindness. The actual definition of this word, what chesed means, is a kind of dutiful love. A kind of obligation, a kind of duty that can only be brought out from love and from ownership of something. Does that make sense? It's the kind of feeling, it's the kind of love that leads a father to wake up at five o'clock every single morning and to go to work for his family. Not because he cares about his job or not because the money is great or he likes doing it, but because he knows that that's how he provides for his family. That this is the way that he can show loving kindness to his wife and kids. This is the way that he shows mercy to them, that he expresses that chesed. This is the type of love and the type of that duty, the type of obligation that leads a child to make a card for his mom or his dad. It says, I love you, written in crayon on it, right? Just because. Because he felt like maybe that would make his parents feel better, that this is a way, even as a child, that he can show mercy to his parents, that kind of loving kindness. And I think that when we put that word in there, now we get a, a better sense of what Jesus is trying to say to us. Because when I look back, and I think it, it also fits too before I get there. I think it fits too with when he's saying that it is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it is the sick. That this is the kind of feeling, this is the kind of love, this is the kind of obligation that Jesus wants for us that leads us to wake up every single day and to say, who have I shared Christ with today? Who in my life does not know God? Who can I begin to make relationships with? Who around me in my life can I begin to evangelize to? Can I begin to have those relationships with and to show Christ with them? When we look behind us, and there are 26,000 tally marks, and each one of these tally marks represents a real person who right now is in danger of hell because they do not know the love and the grace of God. These are, each one of these represents a person who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ and does not understand the love and the grace and the glory and majesty that comes with his name. And I wonder, how many of these people do we know right now? If we were to break it down, how many people are in this room? Somewhere 50, 60, 70, something like that. How many of these 26,000 do you think we see on a daily basis? I would imagine it's probably a pretty big chunk. And then when we ask ourselves, go a step further, how many of these could we know? Could we very easily step out of our comfort zone and begin to make relationships with? I said that you know, earlier on, I talked about my relationship with, with church and all the things that I did. And I look back at those times now, and I'm not as proud of myself as I was back then. And the reason for that is because a lot of times, you know, I kind of look back and I can't help but thinking that I just wasted my time. Uh, that every single day, that's, that's exactly what I was doing. I was wasting my time. Because honestly, what I was really saying, when I looked at my schedule and I said, you know, well, Monday I'm going to my campus ministry, and Tuesday I'm going to leadership with the church, and then on Wednesday I'm doing youth services, Thursday I'm, you know, doing leadership with the campus ministry, Friday I'm doing a Bible study. Actually, what I was really saying is that Monday I'm going to go hang out with all my church friends in a church. 
And then on Tuesday, I'm going to go talk about church leadership with my church friends in a church. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to go to church. And then on Thursday, I'm going to talk about church history in the basement of a church with other church kids. Right? At no point in time in any of those things that I was doing was I ever interacting with non-believers. At no point in time in any of those activities that I was calling discipleship and that I would have told you very confidently that these things are helping me lead myself closer to Christ was I ever leading someone closer to Christ. And if we consider that being a disciple means to follow Jesus and the very first thing that Jesus did with Matthew is that he led him into his own house with other tax collectors and sinners that he told the Pharisees, he proclaimed and announced it, that I have come not to call the righteous but to call sinners. Don't we think that that's an important thing? That that should probably be the first thing in our mind, the first thing that we're doing is how am I interacting with non-believers? And I don't want you guys to get the wrong message from what I'm saying. Because what I am not saying is that those things are bad and you shouldn't do them. On no level am I saying that. I don't regret the things that I did in college. I don't regret being a part of any of those things. I learned so much, an immeasurable amount about the gospel, about Jesus and his call in my life. I made some relationships there with other believers that got me through some really hard times. Matthew Thomas is my longest friend. And I met him and I grew in my relationship with him primarily through campus ministry. And there are tons of other people, other relationships that I have made that I still continue and talk with those people today and have those relationships because of the things that I was involved in. They led me to where I was today. So that's not what I'm saying. To to a very small extent, I would even encourage you guys to, to look for those things, to use your time and to find other ways of doing leadership. But what I am saying What I am getting at here is that perhaps as we're really thinking about what it means to be a disciple and as we are moving in our walk with Christ, perhaps what we need is not another Bible study. Perhaps instead what we need is to be challenged to meet some of these people. Perhaps what we need is to stop doing different things and adding things to our schedule thinking that sacrificing our time is what leads us closer to God but instead to have real chesed, to have that loving kindness and that mercy towards God, realizing where he wants me to go and having that duty that can only come from ownership and love in the gospel and to go and spread it to those that need it. I think that that's what I'm getting at here and that is my challenge to you. Francis Chan, um, any of you guys ever heard of Francis Chan? All right, pastor out in California, wrote a couple books, Crazy Love was one of them. Uh, He has this sermon that that I really like and and he talks about, he said, you know, I have a daughter and if I were to go to my daughter and if I were to tell her, go clean your room, I wouldn't expect her to come back to me the next day and say, I memorized what you said, dad. I learned it. Memorized it in the original Greek, actually. As a matter of fact, I'm having a couple friends come over later today and we're going to have a discussion session where we're going to talk about what it would look like in the world if we all just cleaned our rooms. And we laugh at that, but we laugh at it because it sounds so ridiculous, right? Because the only correct answer to someone saying to their daughter, go and clean your room, would be, yes, father, and then for that child to actually go and clean their room, right? To just do what was asked of them. And so why then, if that sounds so ridiculous, do we do that with God? That Jesus has very clearly told us, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick, 
He's given us the Great Commission. He's told us, go out and make disciples. And instead of actually doing it, we think that we're doing the right thing by coming up and saying, I memorized that entire verse. I could give you the Great Commission word for word right now. I could tell you all the original Greek. I'm in a Bible study every single week with other church people that I know. We get together and we, we talk to each other about what it would look like if we made disciples and what that means. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's not what being a follower of Christ looks like, right? And so as we, as we move on, and I'm, I'm pretty much done, um, I would encourage you guys to pray about this, to look for it, to think about where God has actually called you to. What in your life right now, what are you doing every single day that could be changed for the gospel? Where are you meeting these people, people who need God, the sick the sinners who need Jesus Christ and how can we begin to build and cultivate relationships with them and lead them to Christ and show him the loving power and glory and majesty of his grace that he has shown us. And this leads really well into, you know, next week uh, we will be starting missional communities. And this is not a, a plug, but I, but I will say this, that the purpose of missional communities is for us, yes, to discuss the Bible, Yes, to hold each other accountable to the mission, but it is also a chance for us to love and serve one another and to go. It is a chance for us to hold each other accountable to that mission that God has called us to. And it's an opportunity that I believe will help us, or that can help us if we use it right, to embolden us and, and encourage us, equip us to start to make those relationships to go out and to find those who do not know Jesus. And so I would encourage you guys that next week when we come here, when we start talking about missional communities, don't tune out and think this is just another thing to add to your list. By the same token, don't come running to it the way that you know, I did as a kid and think that this is something I can lead, right? This is something that I can jump in, I can get involved, there can be one more thing that I do. Another thing I can write on my resume for Jesus. But instead, Think of this as an opportunity for discipleship. Think of this as an opportunity to not do something different, but to do the same things you're doing differently. Um, I'm going to pray us close really quick, and then after this, we're going to move uh, into a time of communion. So let's, let's pray. Dear God, thank you once again for who you are. Thank you that you have given us this chance, God. You have given us something to hope for, You've given us something to say and be emboldened about. You've come and you've given the ultimate sacrifice that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. You have forgiven us while we were yet sinners. You died for us. I pray, God, that that truth would be central to us. I pray that that, God, would lead us to chesed, to the loving kindness that you deserve that we would learn that you desire that kind of mercy and not sacrifice and that that would change the way that we are doing the things that we already do every single day. It's your holy and precious name that we pray, amen. Um, so now, guys, what we're gonna do is, is we're going to have communion. Um, they're gonna come and they're gonna play for a moment. And this is, this is really, this is our chance to respond to the gospel above everything else. Um, if you sit at your table, if you stand up and raise your hands, whatever, this is our chance to take what the Lord has said to us and to give us a chance to really believe it, to give us a chance to respond to that through tithing, through communion, through prayer, and through worship. Um, communion is a, an important sacrament for us as Christians. Uh, it is part of accepting God's body uh, as provision for our sins. 
You know, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, of taking that, dipping it in the juice, which is represented, it represents his blood, the blood of the new covenant. And so if you are a believer, uh, we would encourage you that part of that response is taking this communion, really praying and asking God to lead you in that. And if you are not a believer, uh, we would encourage you to use this time then to respond in prayer, to reach out to God, whether you believe in him or not, or whatever you, wherever you are on the scale, but to stay in your seat then and to use this time to say, where do I stand in all of this? What is God trying to speak to me in that? If you have any questions, uh, we are more than willing to answer them. Um, use this time, guys. Um, and feel free to, to take communion. Thank you. That he walked, that he was perfect, that he struggled with everything that we currently struggle with. Scripture would call Jesus, he's an empathetic high priest that he knows, he's gone through it. We've had friends betray us, so has Jesus. We've lost loved ones, so has Jesus. We've struggled with sin, so has Jesus, but he did not give himself over to sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. One of the most gut-wrenching uh, texts in Scripture is when Christ is on the cross and he screams out, God, why have you forsaken me? This is a feeling, this is a truth that Jesus Christ has never experienced in his existence, that in this moment, he is separated from his Father. Why? Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin. In that moment, Christ took on all of our sins. Every one of them, past, present, and future. How many of our sins were future sins when Christ died on the cross? All of them. All of them. So these sins that we beat ourselves up for, Christ has already died for. So he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God as long as we work really hard for it and don't cuss and don't watch rated R movies and give some money to the church. Is that really in there? No. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is an imputed righteousness is what theologians would call it. That he has just given it to it. You want to be made whole, you want to be made new, you want to be a new creation, here it is. You don't have to earn it, you don't have to work for it, you don't have to do anything for it. All you have to do is believe in me, have faith in me that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah, that I have come and that I have died for you. But death could not hold me, that I had defeated death for your sake and for your sake and for my sake and now you can become righteous. You become whole. You can be a new creation. We can. We are the church. And here's the greatest sin of our time is that we do nothing with that. We do nothing with that. Thursday morning, a lady in the northwest or northeast, life was changed because she made $774 million from winning the lottery. 700, over $700 million. Well, they're going to tax a lot of that. Okay, sure. She's going to walk home with $300 million. That's a good day. 
Do you think she's talking about it? Do you think she's enjoying it? Do you think she's blessing people with that money? I've called her a couple times, hadn't got through. <laughs> hey, there's a church down in uh, Dahlonega, Georgia. I could really use a jet. I live 15 minutes from town. A jet would just, helico- helicopter would be fine. Helicopter's fine. Right? No. The greatest sin of the church is us keeping our mouths shut. That we are the mouthpiece of Christ. And here's, here's what I don't want you to hear me say. I don't want you to hear me say, I need to talk more so that God would love me more. No, I'm saying look backwards. If there's not a change in your life, if there's not a feeling, if there's not a call in your life to tell people the good news that is Jesus Christ, if there's not an inclining in you to study Scripture, to read Scripture, to press into who Jesus is, if there's not a desire in you for things of new, not things of old, I just have to ask you a really hard question. Have you been freed from your old self? Do you actually know Jesus or do you know the church Ephesians 2 would say um, that we let the world that knows nothing about live us, living tell us how to live. Are we just following the ways of the world? Are we trying to earn our way into heaven? Or are we understanding our identity as a church? We are the group. We are the called out ones who are following Christ with everything that we have. And if we're not walking in that obedience, uh, can we just be honest enough to ask the question Why? Can we not just be honest enough to say, Man, do, do I really know Jesus if I've never had any desires of things of him? Because here, here's the beauty, college students. Uh, your parents weren't in your dorm room this morning, were you? They weren't beating your door down, forcing you to go to church with them. This is your choice now. This is you now. Welcome to the world of grown-up land so now you get to ask yourself the hard questions am I really a follower of Jesus am I really a new creation or have I been going through the motion for the past 18 years because I think this is what I was supposed to do maybe you still feel like you have to earn your way into heaven you have to do enough good things. That's what your church has taught you in the past. I, mean, I would love to walk through you through Scripture and show you that's just not true. We have faith in what Christ has done for us, and that's counted to us as righteousness. That's counted to us as righteousness. So one of the things we do here every single week, and I hope that you guys can participate with us, is we study Scripture together and then we take communion together. And, and what this means, what this does for our souls, it recalibrates us a little bit. Because we've all fallen short this week. I'm not, I'm not perfect. I might look perfect. I'm not. Come to my house. I really wanted to cuss last night watching that fight. Can I not be honest? Ford Mayweather, man, he's making me so mad. And it was late, and I was drinking coffee trying to stay awake, and it was just not a good situation. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, I've fallen short tons this week. 
And I will continue to fall short. So what we do as a church is we come together and we take communion together to remember who we are. That it's nothing that we have to do to earn Christ's love. There's nothing we have to do to earn his favor. When we break the body which represent or break the bread which represents his body, we dip it into the juice which represents his blood. We remember how much we are loved and what he's done for us. That we have been made new creations, that we are the church, we are the reconciled ones, we are the mouthpiece of God wherever we go this week, that that's who we are. So if you're not yet a believer, man, I'm so glad that you're here, I really am. But I'd ask you that you just respectfully um, sit back and watch as we take communion as believers, because this means the world, this is all that we are in an expression. So just sit back and observe, and you want to talk to us, we'll love to talk to you about it. But it's us as believers, this is our first step in understanding our identity as the church. That we are the church, that we are the called out ones, the mouthpiece of God wherever we go this week. That we're not dependent on a building or a sound system or a screen or words or any of that. What we're dependent on is scripture and the power of the Christ on the cross. That's who we are. So I'm going to pray for us. And we've got two communion stations on either side that we can just um, meditate on, reflect on the goodness that is Christ, and take communion together, and then we'll continue in worship. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do love us. Father, thank you that we don't have to earn that love. We don't have to do anything crazy. God, we don't have to follow all these steps to earn your love, God. All we have to do is have faith in you. God, we just have to believe that you are who you say you are. That you did what you said you did on the cross. And that paid our debt. Father, that our sin has created a gap between us and you, God. And by Christ on the cross, you have paid that debt. You have laid a cross across that gap for us to come to you, for us to be reconciled to you. So God, I pray for my new friends in this room. Father, I pray that as, as we think and as we ponder and as we wrestle potentially for the first time, am I actually a Christian? Am I actually part of the church? Do I have faith to let go of my works and trust Jesus with my life? Do I really believe that Christ went to the cross for me? Do I really believe that when he said it is finished, that he meant it? There's nothing else I have to do. Nothing else I have to act like to earn my salvation. That all of my sin, past, present, and future have been paid for. And then I follow him. I delight in him. Do, do we believe that, church? Are we the called out ones? Are we the, the ones that 
or outside of our minds because of you? Do we live differently than the world around us because of your love and your grace? God, would you speak to our hearts in this moment? Father, would you allow us to ask hard questions? Father, would we pray on and meditate on your word of what the church is and what the Bible says about who we are? Father, would we wrestle? Would we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Would we wrestle with what this means? God, because we want to know you. We want to know your grace. We want to know your mercy. We want to know your love, and we want to be transformed by it. And we want to see our friends and families transformed by it, and then their friends and family, and their friends and family. We want to see the whole world come to know who you are. God, forgive us for going to church and being a spectator. Father, would we pick up our identities that we are the church. And as we take communion this morning, would we think and remember and celebrate who you are and what you've done for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.